0: At long last, I am ready to begin. It took some extra time because of, of this, and you'll know what that is in a little bit. But to start, I need to pray tonight. I feel yeah, I feel like we all could be- yeah, we all benefit from that. So, so dear Lord, thank you for bringing us together here tonight. Thank you for this opportunity we have to open up Your Word and to see what You have to say, even in Parts that are less common, less commonly taught. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me to be clear in how I point to you through what we, have to ta- what we have to talk about in the story tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God had just given the people of Israel specific instructions about how to live in his ways and remain close to him in a covenant relationship. During one of Moses' trips up the mountain, God also gave him specific instructions about how to build a holy tent called the tabernacle. God said, "Build a special place for me to live among the people I love." So Moses gathered the very best craftsmen and workers, and they began building the tabernacle in the center of the camp. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, I'm pausing there. There's there's more where that came from, but we're going to we're going to stop for just a sec. Cuz if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we know that God has just led his people The people of Israel out into the wilderness. They were slaves in Egypt, and he led them out to Mount Sinai. And he's talking to Moses, who is kind of the, who is, he's kind of chosen to be sort of his spokesperson to the people of Israel. And now he's talking about something called the tabernacle. So, brief anecdote once upon a time, when I was very young, my dad, being a huge book nerd, started reading me The Lord of the Rings. So, where other people were doing, like, you know, Goodnight Moon for their bed stories, he was reading me Pilgrim's Progress, and he was reading, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, when I was, like, still too young to even know what he was saying, and then, you know, Lord of the Rings, very early, I was probably too young, but I turned out okay, so it's fine, but... <laughs> I think. I'll let you be the judge. Did I turn out okay? Um, the Lord of the Rings is a really exciting story. It's very, it's very well told. J.R.R. Tolkien is a master craftsman of stories. The books still hold up today. They're full of characters that people, you know, people get invested in, and you empathize with them, and you, you want to see them you know, overcome their struggle, and it's really exciting. And then um, Tolkien, however, he also wrote something called The Silmarillion, which as a, young, as a young person, so I read Lord of the Rings myself for the first time. I felt very grown up at that point, because it, before it, my dad had always read it to me. And then I was like, there's this thing called the Silmarillion. I'm going to go read that. And I had a very hard time getting into it. Because, you see, unlike the Lord of the Rings, which is a very, it's very much a story, the Silmarillion is more a collection of stories. It it, it really reads more like a history textbook, but for a place that doesn't exist, or like the mythology of a place that doesn't exist. And it's a lot more dry. It's not as exciting. I mean, it's... it is if you're a Tolkien nerd. Like If you want to read The Silmarillion, you need to look, your, you need to look yourself square in the eye, find a mirror, and ask, ask yourself, am I a huge nerd? If the answer is yes, then go read The Silmarillion. It's great. Anyone can read Lord of the Rings, but you kind of have to be a huge nerd to read The Silmarillion. And I felt similarly my first time attempting to read through the Book of Exodus in its entirety. Because the first half is everything we've kind of covered over the last couple of weeks. It's all God bringing the people out of Egypt. He's doing all these plagues. It's crazy. I mean, the plagues escalate. It, you know, there's, there's tension. It builds up to this, the big one, and then finally they're free. But, oh, wait, they're not quite free. And it's like, it's, it's very exciting. And then you get to Mount Sinai, and the story grinds to a halt. Or so it seemed to me as a, you know, young person trying to read Exodus for the first time. Because what happens is God gets, takes them to Sinai, and then he starts giving them a whole long list of rules. All the rules that they are going to follow as a nation. Because before, they were slaves in Egypt. They followed the Egyptians' rules. God's giving them his rules. But the first time I tried to read Exodus, I bounced off it hard. And fun fact, it's not just Exodus. Raise your hand if you've heard the word Leviticus before in your life. Okay, good. You've hung around church, I can see. Because outside of church, you will never hear that word. Although I did see it on The Simpsons one time, so uh, I can't say that. All right, well, here's the thing. It's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, the story does continue here and there as God leads the people to the Promised Land, but a lot of it is laws. And we tend to skip over that part of the Bible because it's not as exciting. Or at least if you're like me. Maybe you're all way better than me. How many of you have actually read all the way through Leviticus or Numbers or Okay, there's a couple hands. Okay, so you are like me. That is good. That is a good baseline. The goal is for you to be better than me someday. So what we're doing here today is we're ta- we're going to summarize a lot of these laws, but I want to acknowledge that man. It's like it doesn't seem like there's a lot of purpose here. It's a it's a, but. At the end of the day, everything that God says has a purpose. 2 Timothy 3.16, another famous 3.16. Um, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that one, one thing that means is we have to study these things. But the other thing is that there is value here. God is saying something through all these laws. Now, as we talk about the tabernacle, I brought something to help illustrate it. It is an ancient artifact from the, the far distant land known as the 60s. It's called a flannel graph. Behold, it is magic. This is, a lo- this is an ancient lost art, lost to the people of the 60s, but uncovered by my mom in a closet somewhere. So, what you have there is that is the tabernacle from the outside. So in the middle there is the tent part that we're, we're about to talk about. Here is an altar where they offer sacrifices, a basin where they wash, and then in here though, this is the inside. And that is about what we're about to read about. Andrew, as I'm just realizing now, I'm gonna be standing over here, would you like to stand up there and maybe point out things as I mention them? Thank you. I think think they are pretty self-explanatory, I hope. So it says, the tent was divided into two rooms. The large outer room was called the holy place. Inside this room, there was a stand that held seven oil lamps called a menorah. The lamps burned day and night and symbolized God's constant protection and watch over his people. Next to this was a table with 12 loaves of bread on it, reminding them that God would always provide for their needs. Also in the holy place was a gold altar where incense was burned. Incense reminded them of God's nearness and was also a symbol of their prayers rising to God. So one thing I want you to note here is there's a lot of symbolism here, right? Like all of these items symbolize something. Just keep that in mind. So the small inner room was called the Holy of Holies. A thick curtain hung from the ceiling of the tent all the way down to the floor, separating it from the holy place. The ark contained a special wooden chest. The room contained a special wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. The ark contained the stone tablets that God wrote on and gave to Moses. And we actually have an artist's rendering of the inside of the ark. That's all over here. So, just pretend it's over there. Um, On top of the ark was a gold cover called the Mercy Seat, where the presence of God would come. When the Israelites finished building the tabernacle, God showed his presence was there by covering the top of it with a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Whenever the cloud or fire would move, they would pack up camp and follow it. God told the people of Israel, when you realize you have sinned, you must confess it and bring an offering to me. Then I will remove your sins and forgive you. Because of his love for the Israelites, God provided a way for them to substitute the life of an animal they're a little animal for their own. A life for a life. Every day people would bring sacrifices to God in the courtyard of the tabernacle. This system of sacrifice continued for hundreds of years, but these sacrifices were only a symbol of what was to come. God was preparing a final sacrifice that would pay for the world's sins once and for all. Give me one moment. So, that's, that's a lot of stuff about this, about this ancient building here, ancient structure. Not, not even a building at this point, it's a tent. And yet that's where God chose to meet with his people. So earlier I was mentioning the Lord of the Rings, right? How it's this really good, you know, it's a really good story. And something I've realized is every story kind of has some sort of main main conflict, main issue at stake, right? I mean, in Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of characters, they go a lot of places, they do a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to the main problem being that there is a ring of power, and if the bad guy gets it, he can take over the world. And I feel like, I think every I think every kind of story usually has something like this, right? I mean, maybe maybe fantasy's not your thing. Maybe you're into romance novels, in which case, like, okay, fine, but like, in, in, or maybe romance movies, it doesn't, like, but like, even there, like, the problem is, there are two people who should be smooching. They are not doing this for some reason. Something is in the way, and the, sto- and the story, like, whatever, however, whatever characters there are, whatever they're doing, like it all comes back to the problem that something is preventing two people from smooching. <laughs> <laughs> so. so, what we're reading here doesn't really feel much like a story as we're just reading, like, well, here's what this thing is. It feels very more descriptive, it feels more dry. But I would argue that this still is a part of a greater story. It may not be like the exciting story of like, ah, here's how God threw all these plagues at these guys, but it's still a part of a story. Like, based on what we've learned so far, the past few lessons we've done, does anyone have an idea of what the kind of the main conflict is right now in, in Scripture, in the Bible, like going back to Adam and Eve? Some people are just smiling at me, and it's really off-putting. All right, Nels, what do you think? Yes. (laughs) There you go. You know, you're right. You went no. Well, that's that is that is it, isn't it? Though, originally, in in the very in the very beginning, we read about how God created the earth. It was all good. God created humans. It was all good. God walked with humans in the Garden of Eden. Everything was great. And then something happened. This this perfect paradise that God created was disrupted by sin. Because of sin, Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence, removed from the Garden. Cain, their son, sinned. He got removed even further. He got kicked out of wherever they were living. And on and on it goes. Sin is is this problem, it's this thing that's separating us from God, but God still wants to be with us. And this is what the tabernacle symbolized. It was situated right in the middle of their camp. God wanted to be with them, but sin was still a problem. And that is where we get to talking a little more in depth about what took place at this tabernacle. So just to continue for a little bit here, it says, At this time, the Israelites organized themselves into 12 groups called tribes, according to which of the 12 sons of Israel... Jacob, they descended from. Moses' brother Aaron was the oldest of the descendants of Levi, Israel's firstborn son. God chose Aaron and his sons to represent the people as priests. They had the special job of bringing the people's offerings to God. And I got one more little thing for you here. That's Aaron, right there. There you go. It's a very nice robe. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. The priests were the only ones allowed inside the tabernacle, If anyone else tried to come near God's presence, they would die. But no one was allowed to go inside the Holy of Holies except the high priest, Aaron, on a special day called the Day of Atonement. God said to Moses, in addition to the weekly Sabbath, you should set aside time for festivals where everyone comes together to worship, celebrate, and rest. The Israelites held several festivals each year. Some lasted for weeks. The special Day of Atonement occurred during one of their fall festivals. God said, this will be a special day where you will all be made right with me. Today you will find forgiveness and cleansing from all your sins. So here we're getting back to that issue of sin, right? The tabernacle is where God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, but sin is still a problem. So here's where we get into that. Then God told the Aaron... Nope. It actually says the Aaron. I'm not making that up. Okay, God told Aaron what he must do on the Day of Atonement. I do apologize for that. He said... You must follow all of my instructions completely, or you will die. Make sure you are completely clean, without sin on the inside and out. Then wear the special clothes made for the occasion. God went on to describe the special underclothing, not pictured, and the elaborate robe Aaron should wear, which is pictured. God continued, Sacrifice a young bull as payment for your sins and the sins of your family. Then dip your finger in the blood from this bull, and sprinkle it on the cover of the ark and then sprinkle it seven times on the front of the ark. Then find two spotless goats and sacrifice one of them as a substitute for the sins of all the Israelites. Take its blood and sprinkle it on the cover and front of the ark as you did with the bull's blood. I will accept this and forgive all the sins and rebellion of the people. Remember, blood represents life. In this blood, you will find life and atonement for your sins. After this, Aaron was to bring in the other goat, which was still alive, called the scapegoat, also called the ahazel, which means to take away. God told them, lay both of your hands on its head and confess all of the people's sins, putting them on the head of the goat. Then lead this goat far away into the wilderness. The people's sins will be taken away with it, never to be seen again. Aaron and the people of Israel followed God's instructions carefully. Because of this, the people were made right with God once again and given atonement for their sins. This was a holy day that the people of Israel continued to celebrate year after year. All right, that was kind of a lot, wasn't it? I mean, not just like a lot of words, but like that's just a lot. That's some heavy stuff. I mean, there's, there's things in there like, okay, if you're not a priest and you walk into, that, into, into there, you die. Batteries flashing. Oh. flashing. Oh, all right. Also, we're not in we're not in Great Britain, so I can say bloody. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry if there are any Brits here. Um. Where were we? We were talking about the tabernacle and all the things that happened in the tabernacle and around the tabernacle. And we were talking about how it's, it's heavy stuff. Like there's a lot of death. Like if you, do the wrong, if, you, you know, if you do the wrong thing, you die. There's a reason there are little bells on Aaron's robe there. If he went in there and he didn't do it just right, he would die. And so they tied a rope around his ankle and if they heard, you know, if they heard the, like, the bells stop jingling, they knew something had happened and they would have to pull him out you can't actually go in there to get his body if he dies. It's, it's, it's hardcore. Like this, this is some hardcore stuff. And there's a lot of killing of animals. There's a lot of sprinkling of blood, which sounds pretty barbaric to us. Not going to lie. Like we live in a day and age where it's like, you you know, you walk into church and like, no one's going to stand there and be like, dude, where's your goat? Just like, you don't have a, you're going to need a goat. Oh, you're also, oh, you need a knife too. Okay, well look, maybe you can borrow my knife, but you're going to need a goat, and you might want an apron, because I don't know if you want to get like, you know, I don't know if this is going to get messy. Like, no, you walk into church, somebody shakes your hand, gives you one of those little papers, and you go in and sit down, and it's nice. It's very nice, all very nice. So that brings up the question again, why are we studying this? This tabernacle doesn't exist anymore. The temple that succeeded in a more permanent version also doesn't exist anymore. So if we don't actually follow these rules, then what are we, what are we learning about them? So the, the text already kind of spoiled it for you. It's, it's because it's a symbol. These things all symbolize something. They all point to something. Each and every aspect of worship at the tabernacle, every rule and every law pointed to something. And, and the thing is, a lot of those laws pointed to sin. The law contains a lot of stipulations about what makes you clean and what's unclean, what's good and what's bad, and a lot about like, what is wrong and what you shouldn't do, and then what you do when you've done that thing. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, it's, it's not very forgiving, is it? The law itself. Like, it doesn't sound like, this is where people kind of develop this idea, like, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he must have been a different God, because that's harsh, It's harsh, not because God is cruel. God's not sitting in the tabernacle, like waiting for someone to cross the line so we can zap them. That's not our God. He's the same God today as he was then. He's the same. He's like if he, he is, if he's a loving God, then he was loving back then. The problem all comes back to sin. The reason the law had so many reminders for sin is because sin is that bad. The reason you died if you tried to go into God's presence unclean is because sin is that bad and so the law contained a lot of reminders of sin a lot of reminders that we're not good enough to come into God's presence on our own the thing is animal sacrifice back then was actually like a fairly common religious practice but like most of the time people would just go out in their backyards and be like oh great God of the, the stars or whatever uh, here I'm killing this thing God said, no, you're going to do this my way. It's like, you're, you're not going to do it yourself. You're going to have someone, someone's going to do it for you, someone who has been appointed to the task. And then once a year, you're going to have the, you know, you're going to, everyone's going to get cleansed of their sins. It's still tough. But, but something I realized as I was looking at this, as I was reading about this, I was thinking like, wow, good thing we don't have to do all this anymore. That's harsh. Good thing I don't have to worry about like accidentally becoming unclean because I walked too close to the, to the dirty thing or something. Like, Sure is nice, but that doesn't mean we don't still have reminders of sin because the fact of the matter is sin always leaves a mark, always leaves a reminder. When I got into college, I found out college is very stressful, especially when you're taking an engineering course, especially when you're taking calculus. Calculus is, it's, calculus is a lot. To comprehend, it's a lot to process, and there's just a lot about college. It's, a hard, lot to, it's hard to process. It's hard. It's, it was stressful having to handle things on my own now, having to do all, you know, having to pay all this money every semester and figure out where that money is going to come from. And there was a day where it all got to me, like I, I had had enough. And luckily, I had at hand a very large, very heavy calculus textbook. The thing was like this, this thick, maybe that, that, that long. It was big. Like, you, you know, it's like, like you could get a good workout just going like this with a calculus textbook all day. It'd probably be more useful to me now. It probably would have been more useful in the long run for me, actually. So I lost my temper. I picked, and of course, like, when you when you're really mad, the best thing to do is to just grab something really heavy and move it really fast. It's really cathartic. You should totally not try it sometime, because please don't. But I picked, so I picked up my calculus textbook in a moment of just, like, I just snapped, I lost it, I tossed it, and... It was over a moment, you know, and immediately I realized, oh, that was stupid, but it was too late. The damage was done. There was a hole in my wall. <laughs> About this big, maybe. About this big, because the, the, the corner of the calculus book had impacted the wall. And did I say my wall? I meant my parents' wall, because I was living at their house at the time. That hole stayed there for a little while because I'm not a terribly handy person. I didn't know how to fix it. Um, it stayed there for a while, eventually we patched it over, but even when we patched that hole, the mark was still there, you could still see that it was smooth, and it wasn't the same color as the paint. And it took a lot of time, it took a lot, it took a lot of time, eventually we figured out how to how to texture it so the texture more or less blended in with the rest of the wall, and, we, and eventually the room was repainted. And... You know, we got around, I mean, someone who's really handy probably would have done all that way faster, but the point remains that, that that mark was there. Like, every time I came home and went into my room, I, got, I was reminded of that time where I did a bad thing. And sometimes the marks aren't external. Like, you know, if you throw a book at the wall or if you, you know, like, get smacked in the face, like, there's, there's a mark, some, you know, something be, you can see, be reminded of. Sometimes the marks are not outside. I never, I never got into fights in high school, I, didn't, I wasn't in wrestling, I, never, I didn't do a lot of impact, I didn't do like any sports really, so I didn't get hit a lot, but man, I beat myself up every single day, not outside where anyone could see it, but every day I got up and told myself that I was a piece of garbage, I would never succeed, I should not try to make friends, I should not try to do anything scary or outside my comfort zone because I will surely fail. And I figured, like, it's okay. I'll grow out of this someday. I don't have to work. On, I don't have to worry about this. It's like, it's fine. It'll be fine. And I, then I didn't grow out of it. Fun fact: I have to deal with the consequences of that every day. I have to get up every day and retrain my brain. Because if I'm not consciously thinking about it, that is where I go now. I have trained myself by years of smacking my psyche around to think that I am garbage, that I should never try to do anything exciting or new or different or good because I will surely fail and I should just go home and watch YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. I'm sad to admit. I need to be accountable to you all. Ask me next week how much YouTube I watched this week, okay? When I should have been doing like good things. Um, The problem is sin always leaves a mark whether it's there or not. The point of the law, the reason there were so many commandments about being clean versus unclean was both for one thing to set God's people apart to make them a sign and a symbol to the other nations of what it meant to follow God and it was also a reminder to them of how pervasive sin is on how many parts of our lives sin interacts with and infects. And it also points to the need to be made to have that to atone for that sin. Atonement being a word, which means basically to pay for something, to, to make it right, to make it good again. When we sin, we have wronged God. We have made ourselves una- unable to approach God. Like walking into the tabernacle wasn't like walking to the arms of like a, of like a really angry God who's just like, I'm going to get you. Walking to the tabernacle with sin on you was like, Man, being a dark room when the light's turned on. It's like the dark, is, the dark cannot exist where the light is. God is not deficient in love that he would impose all these rules on his people. Rather, sin is that bad and God's love is so great that he made a way for them to be made right with him. Another thing we see, though, in these laws is that sin has to be paid for and the price is not cheap. It, has, it, it requires a life. And God, in His love, did not ask for the people of Israel to like start killing people, right? He wasn't like, "Well, you sinned, I guess you got to die now." No, He said, "Okay, you've sinned. That requires a payment. That requires a life. Take this goat. Take your or take your goat. Like, it had to be your goat. It had to be, you know, like, it had to be actually a sac- It had to be an actual sacrifice. You couldn't take someone else's goat. And here's the thing: the reason there were two goats at the day of, on the day of atonement." One was to pay for sins, but the other, the azazel, or whatever that's, I think that is how it's pronounced, was supposed to carry the sins of the people off into the wilderness. Like, they would just let that goat go. It would wander in the wilderness. Their sins would go away. And what all this points to is a need for us to not only have our sins paid for, but to have them taken away. So this is what you have your Bibles for here today. Um, If you wouldn't mind opening to Hebrews chapter nine, you're gonna notice that that's really far away from Exodus. Like, really far. So I don't know if you guys are worried about spoilers, but this this is gonna kinda spoil everything right now here. Hebrews 9, verse 11. We're going to talk about a guy called the Christ. We're going to talk about a guy called Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's talking about the Messiah. Even back then, even back when they were coming into this tent, the people of Israel knew that God had promised a Messiah. The law was always supposed to be temporary. When people come up to you at school like they did to me and ask you, hey guys, well, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's like the Bible says you're not supposed to get tattoos, but your youth pastor has tattoos. Is he breaking the law? Is he breaking the, the, the Bible law? Like, Should he be Bible prosecuted? Like, the answer is, the law Was always supposed to be rendered obsolete when the messiah came because you see the thing is they had to do this every single year if goat blood was enough to cleanse you then like for good why did they have to do it every year why did they have to keep re-cleansing everything with blood why did they have to keep doing that but it all points to jesus The law was supposed to teach the people of Israel about these concepts that when Jesus came, they would see him and go, aha, that, that guy is the real the better than the goat. (laughs) Well. But he is, though, he is better than goats. It took two goats, right? One to die for to pay for sin, one to take the sin away. Jesus did it both. He died to pay for sin. And he rose again, and he's taken that sin away. That sin's gone now. He was the better priest. He didn't need to worry about holy underwear. He he was able to go into the heavenly tabernacle, right? This was just a picture of God's real throne room in heaven, right? Like, God, God ultimately dwells in heaven, and that is where Jesus went as that priest. The law taught us we need someone to go in our place. Well, Jesus was the one who went in our place. And guys, I can't promise you that putting your trust in Jesus, that repenting of your sins and asking for forgiveness will make the consequences go away. I can't promise that. It's like, you know, it's like a wound. Sometimes you know, it just heals up and it kind it's like, okay. Sometimes it leaves a scar. Like, I can't promise that. I've seen Jesus totally turn people's lives around like that. And then I've seen people like me where it's like, okay, I'm still going. Taking it one day at a time. But what I can promise you beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that you do not need to live with the guilt anymore. Just like that goat, if that goat was a good enough offering for the people of Israel that year, Jesus, who was perfect in every way, the Son of God, God truly dwelling with man, by the way, not in the tent, but he came down and he walked among us, he has taken away that guilt. That, I can promise you with absolute certainty, because... The Bible says so, not just here in Hebrews, but in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, I mean, all of it. It's all one story, and it all points to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is a prayer of praise and rejoicing because, oh my word, you are so amazing. Lord, what you showed the people of Israel, what they, what they had to do year after year, waiting with hopeful expectation for the promised Messiah, Lord, that we get to know that, we get to see that, and we get to experience the benefit of it. Lord, it's more than just not having to worry about like, butchering a goat anymore. It's that our guilt is gone. It is gone once and for all. And I am so, so glad, Lord, that you have made that known to us that that is a promise and that is a promise that you have upheld and will always uphold because Jesus' payment for sin was enough once and for all. Thank you, Lord. I look forward, Father, to to going ever deeper into knowing more and more about you, to studying more and more of your word and to coming to understand more of these things, to love you more, to, to know What it means to be saved, to know what it means to be redeemed and atoned for. I pray that every single person in this room, Lord, be able to go out with that full assurance. And if they're not feeling it today, Lord, I pray that you keep going, because I know you're not going to give up. Jesus was enough. (laughs) Amen. All right. At this point, you will be dismissed to your small groups.